know, I, I don't know if you're at all like me. My guess would be that we probably do share some common things, and one of the things that we probably would have in common is that if you've spent any time pursuing God, you've come to moments in your life where you've had to ask yourself the very question that was in the song. I don't even know if I believe everything you're trying to say to me. And it can be something specific. It could be something you're wrestling through uh, in terms of God's word, a scripture you don't understand, or it could be something more personal, something larger, something in your life where you're trying to make sense of understanding how could this be God's will? And my, I would actually take it a step further, and I would say this, that I would venture to guess that every single person here in this room today, if you search hard, you would find at least one thing where that's true. You're trying to make sense of something in your life and understand how God's will could be that. And you just saw the scriptures up there. It's just kind of an interesting story that we're going to be looking at today. But before we do, I just want to tell you this. When I was, uh, just, just after college, I, I was a teacher uh, initially right out of college. I uh, began teaching. And uh, in the summers, I worked at a YMCA uh, day camp as a camp counselor. And the group of people that I worked with, we all became really close friends. And so we would hang out after work all the time. And it was one of those cool friendships where you kind of had no out-of-bounds conversations. Do you, guys, do you guys have those kind of relationships? You know what I'm talking about? Anything's on the table, you can talk about it. Well, it was that. It was a group of about six of us. And uh, we were, we were uh, talking one day, and the conversation took a spiritual turn. And Allison, who was not a follower of Jesus, she turned and asked me a question, specifically to me, about my belief and my faith in Jesus. And I don't remember the question, it was, but it was one of those kind of questions like, if God is all-powerful, you know, can he make a rock so heavy he can't move it? One of those kinds of ones, that you're, you know. And um, so I didn't know. The, uh, she asked a question. I'm like, I, in my head, I'm like, I have no idea what the answer is to this question. So I did what any good Christian would do, and I started making stuff up on the spot right there. No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. It was interesting because what I said, I, I said to her, uh, Allison, I don't know, that's a really, really good question, and I actually don't know the answer. And she kind of got this gotcha look on her face. And then, uh, if, you, if you've ever had a moment like this, the next things that came out of my mouth were from somewhere else because I'd never thought about this before, and as I heard it, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is bolstering my faith. What I said was this, Allison, I don't know the answer to the question, but I do know this that the very second I can completely and fully understand God who created the universe and boil him, boil him down to my level of IQ, I need a new God because he's not very smart. And she looked, and I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? And it bolstered my faith, but she looked at me and she said, that's a pretty good answer. But to put skin in this, there's an interesting verse you find in Isaiah chapter 55, and it says this. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Basically, what he's saying in this verse is God's ways and thoughts are far from ours. They're as far as the outer reaches of the universe are from the earth. As far as the heavens are from the earth, our thoughts are from God's thoughts. And let me just put a little context on this. When we 
we try and measure the universe, we don't use a tape measure, we use the speed of light. Now the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. In that snap, light circumnavigated the globe six times. Okay? That's the kind of measurement we use. And the sun is 94.4 million miles from the earth. If you got in a car and you drove 65 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would take us 163 years to reach the sun. Okay, that's how far it is. Yet, when you walk outside on a sunny day, the light that hits your face and the warmth that you feel left the sun eight minutes ago. That's pretty amazing. But even take it a little bit further. The sun is the nearest star in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and they estimate that there are over 80 billion, with a B, galaxies. Pretty big. In one minute, light travels 11 million miles. In one day, 160 billion miles. And in one year, a light year, light travels 5,865,696,000,000 miles. That's a light year. And if his ways and his thoughts are as far as our thoughts from the heavens to the earth, what we're understanding is this, that on your very best day, your best thought is 15.5 billion light years away because astrophysicists tell us that is the distance to the outer edges of our universe. So if you're in a moment and you cannot understand what God is doing, guess whose problem it's not? It's not that God's lost or confused or doesn't have an answer. It's that his ways are so far beyond ours, we can't always wrap our brains around it. So it's no wonder there's confusion. But today we're starting a new series that's called A God Who Doesn't Make Sense. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking into a story that we find in John chapter 11 about the story of this friend of Jesus, Lazarus, who dies and is actually raised from the dead. And what I want to do is look at what happens when we can't make sense of God's timing. If you saw those verses at the beginning of the uh, song, at the end of the song, there's a lot of confusion boiling around it. And there's some stuff in there that you go, what in the name of goodness how could this be the right story? So let me just quickly move through this. And what happens is John, uh, Jesus is out of the province of Judea, and uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are in Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, right in the heart of I hate Jesus land, okay? And um, for, for the Jewish religious leaders, that is. And uh, so he's out and... and, and this Mary is the Mary who poured alabaster perfume on Jesus' feet, if you remember that story, and she wiped his feet with her hair. Very endeared friends of Jesus. And Jesus is gone, and Lazarus gets sick. And I don't mean like <laughs> sick, I mean like he's on his way out. And so they send word to Jesus because they know that Jesus could come and heal him. And so they get word to Jesus, and what happens is Jesus said, okay, cool, um, let's stay for a couple more days here. Huh? And he tells his disciples, don't worry, this won't end in death. And then, uh, strange thing, there's some other twists that we'll get to in a minute, but then so finally he, just, he, he gets word 
that he's dead. He tells his disciples, yeah, don't, uh, Lazarus is uh, sleeping, so let's go. And they're like, oh, he's, he's getting better. He's sleeping, getting a good night's rest. He's like, no, no, let me, he's dead. Now, he just told me he wasn't going to end, the story wasn't going to end in death. Now he's saying he's dead, so let's go. Anyway, he travels the distance, goes back to Bethany, and when he arrives, sure enough, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. And uh, end of the story, he raises him from the dead. That's the scenario we're going to be looking at. And I want to look at four things that we can understand about God's timing when it's confusing to us. And I can't answer every question you have, but I think I can provide four insights into how we can learn and grow closer to God, even in these times when things are confusing and don't make sense. And the first one, if you're a note taker, you want to write this down, is this, that God's timing exposes trust. God's timing exposes trust. And there are two things, two people I want to look at. The first is Thomas. And look at this verse with me, if you will. So he plainly, so he told him plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. Feels a little heartless. For now, you will really believe. Come on, let's go see him. And Thomas, nicknamed the twin, also we know as Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. What? (laughs) Is he having a different conversation? See, here's what we understand when you read the passage. A couple of verses earlier, we come across this where, where the disciples are saying, he says, let's go, and they go, hey, well, hold on. Two days earlier, the religious leaders in Judea, where you're trying to go, they were trying to kill you. Do you remember that? And Jesus, in his infinite 15.5 billion light years beyond our reason, says it's time to go right back to the heart of that place. And he's dead. And Thomas, here's what it exposes about Thomas. Thomas goes, okay, then. If you feel like now is the time to enter back into the hot zone where they're trying to kill you, I'm with you and I'm going to die with you. See, because the timing doesn't make sense and my natural tendency is like, well, Jesus, man, have a great trip and it's going to be fantastic, I'm sure. Let me know how it works out. See, but not Thomas because he wanted, he believed in Jesus. He said, my trust is in you and if that's where you're telling me to go, I'm with you to the death. So when timing doesn't make sense, it exposes our trust. But the second person in this story I want to look at is Martha, the brother, or the the sister of of Lazarus. In verse 17, it says this, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died, and key verse, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. He's dead, he's gone, stick a fork in him, he's out four days, but I even know now if you ask, it can happen. See, and if this would have been, you know, maybe two days ago, maybe three days ago, maybe Jesus arrived and healed him before he died. No, she's saying, I trust you completely. I know you have the bat phone to God. And if you ask him, he'll do whatever. (laughs) See, and without the crazy timing, it's not extreme and it's easier to kind of hedge your bets. But he pushes the limit and tests the trust that Martha has. And there was still some confusion, but still... She trusted him. The second thing 
that God's timing does is it replaces control. And specifically what I would say, it replaces my need for control with my need to be in control or to be controlled by God. God's timing forces me to rely on him controlling it, not me. You know, fixing and controlling things and people is like trying to control the rising of the sun. Here, here, let me just be clear with you. There's never been a day in my life where I woke up and I'm like, oh, man, I sure hope the sun rises. Let me look outside. Yes. You know why? Because God figured that out a long time ago and he's in control. I can set a calendar. I can tell you six months from now what time the sun's going to rise and it's going to be true. And I don't need to control that. But in our lives, we spend time obsessing and feeling like we need to control the outcome and the circumstances. And God says, sometimes I push the boundaries of what makes sense so that you can replace your trust with, my, with trust in me. There's a, in, in history, there's this thing called counterfactual theory. It's very interesting. And what it does is it explores history but it looks at not what did happen, but what would have happened if other events would have occurred. For instance, you know, if Paul Revere wouldn't have been able to make his midnight ride, or if we wouldn't have bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, what would have happened? What if, what if Hitler wouldn't have been stopped? It looks at those kinds of things and says, if that, then. And I want to tell you that in this story, there are two amazing counterfactual theorists. It's Mary and Martha. Because they ask the if only and the what if question. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been there, my brother would not have died. If only. And Mary, again, just a few verses later, verse 32, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And here's what I want us to understand about God's timing being confusing. If we are not careful, we move into spiritual counterfactual theory and we start living lives that start asking the what ifs and the if onlys. And what happens when you live in the what if? You destroy your future because you're worried about, well, what if I don't get enough money to retire? What if this person doesn't get healed? What if this relationship never heals? And it steals the future. But it also, when you live in spiritual counterfactual theory, the if-onlys cripple our past with regret and shame and guilt. If only I wouldn't have done this. If only I'd have done this instead. If only, if only. But here's what's cool. If we move out of the counterfactual theory from the if-onlys, and if we move out of the counterfactual theories the, from the what-ifs and we live in the even nows, as Martha had said, e, or as Mary had said, even now, I believe. We replace the control and understand that God isn't got it. Even if he doesn't do what I think he should do in the timing that he should do it, it replaces control. The third thing, is that God's timing moves faith boundaries. And here's the reality of it. If I was to, you know, if you're really honest with yourself, I'm guessing that every single person in this room has a level of belief in what God can do. We believe in miracles and so on in different levels, some, you know, a lot more, some a lot less. But here's the, pro the probable reality of what we believe, that at some point we'll go, yeah, but not that. Yeah, okay, that's just wacky. I mean... I mean, yes, he could heal them. 
And I think that when God shows up with confusing timing, he's actually taking us to the place where we can move the boundaries of our faith with deeper faith. And here, here look at this verse uh, in John chapter, chapter 11, verses 11, it's, or John 11, 14 is where it starts. And he said, so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come on, let's go see him. Let me explain something. John is an interesting book. There are four gospels or four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the gospels. They're those four books. And each of those books have a unique vantage point on the life of Christ. And one of the things that's unique about John is while the other three books focus on the three ministry years of Jesus, his three main years, John focuses on primarily on his last months. And so what you need to understand in this story, we're in the final stages of Christ's life on earth. And lines had been drawn, so often we feel like, well, Jesus had his 12 disciples and that's all he had. No, no, no. He had his disciples and he had this crew in Bethany. There's a whole bunch of people. And probably he had up to 15,000 followers. If you remember the miracle when he fed the 5,000, that's just counting the men. So he's on the hill. He's talking to people. 5,000 men, their wives and children gather around. So what you need to understand is he is a formidable opponent if you're not on his side, which was how the religious leaders viewed him. This guy's a mass. He was a rabbi of epic proportions. I'm going to tell you, if I spoke in front of 15,000 people, I'd be like, mic drop out. (laughs) Right? That's a big deal. And the other religious leaders of the time felt that he was, he was someone that they had to contend with because he represented uh, a movement that was taking them away from what they were trying to teach, pulling their, their power away from them. So that's why they tried to kill him two days earlier. And, and most of, the, of those 15,000, I would guess everyone in town New Jesus had healed and turned water into wine and gave restored sight and made people walk who couldn't walk. They knew all this stuff, but he wants to take it to a new level. He'd actually even raised two other people from the dead previously. And those two situations, the, this boy died as a, uh, the only son of a widow, and just after he died, they put him in the coffin and carry him out. Jesus touches the coffin, the boy sits up, and another one, this girl dies as he's on the way to the house. He reaches in, he says, rise, and she's fine. But this one's different <laughs> See, he's been dead, Lazarus has been dead and in the grave for four days. So maybe a week. And the four days is really important because in that culture, there was a common belief that the spirit would hover around the body after death for three days. He's been dead, he's out, spirit gone, four days. And Jesus in that moment, remember he says, I did this so that my glory will be proclaimed. Yeah, he's trying to go, let's get it. He's dead. He's dead. Spirit gone. Lazarus, come on out. And the people who'd come to mourn with Mary and Martha, as we're told, they came from Jerusalem to mourn, they believed. And what's interesting, see, even the disciples didn't get it. Even Mary and Martha didn't get it. Yeah, We know he can do these miracles, but this one's beyond their ability to even believe. And then he raises him from the dead, and guess what? They still couldn't, now they get it, he can raise people from the dead. They still didn't even understand that he was going to raise himself from the dead. And every time God takes us to these miracles, his intention isn't to confuse us and ask us to leave. He's trying to take us into a deeper level of knowledge, of understanding the depths of his love for us. 
And sometimes in his 15.5 billion light year ways of thinking different than us, he has to confuse us so that we can become dependent on him and let our boundaries move. And my question for you today is what are you asking or needing God to do to move that boundary that you've set on his ability to do the amazing things in your life? Do you really believe he can do anything? Mark chapter 9 says, Jesus is talking to a guy, and he he says, what do you mean, if I can, Jesus asks. Anything is possible if a person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help me move my faith boundary. I believe so much, but I don't believe all the way. And he says, if you believe, anything can happen. And here's the interesting thing about this whole story. What happens when he doesn't do what you want him to do? Is that the time to cash in the chips? Because he didn't do it your way? The being who thinks 15.5 billion light years above any of your best thoughts, do we cash it in when stuff doesn't go my way? Because I believe in those very moments when we can't understand it doesn't make sense and the timing is wrong and God's not getting here when I need him to. He's saying, press into me. Don't cash in your faith. Deepen your faith by trusting me because my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Do we really believe anything is possible? And when anything we ask for doesn't happen, do we still believe that he is God? The fourth thing is this, that God's timing removes safety nets. And I want to tell you a different, uh, just go to a different story in the Old Testament that really illustrates this. But before I do, I want to tell you, like, when when, uh, Susie and I just moved here, our family moved here from Michigan, uh, in our... Uh, I don't know, maybe our first year we decided to go horseback riding. Susie really loves horseback riding. I enjoy it. You know, we're not like cowboys or anything, but we're like, you know what we like to pretend. And so um, we, we went down to, I think it was Riverton or something like that, and uh, we got some horses, and, and uh, we went to this stable, and she sizes us up, and she asks us, you know, how good are you at a ride, you know? And then she's like, okay, well, if, if that's how you are, you're about this, okay, this would be a good horse for you, and Susie, this would be a good horse for you. And so we get on the horses, and we're all saddled up, and, she's just, and, and I'm thinking she's going to take us and show us around, and I have no idea where we are. And she's like, okay, go for it. And Susie's just like, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, we could go anywhere. And I'm like, what if we get lost? I don't know where to go. I don't know this place. You know, I'm like, so, but anyway, I don't say that out loud. I'm like, well, let's just go. I'm sure I'll figure my way back home. So we're, we're kind of riding around. And I realized something that got rid of that fear really quickly. And that what I realized was this, that the very second I didn't diligently lead the horse, it's like, back to the oat bag, back to the barn. Let's go back to the oat bag, back to the oat bag. But no, we're, I want to go here. Back to the oat bag, back to the barn. <laughs> And I had to actively be leading this horse. And immediately I'm like, well, I'm not going to get lost because all I got to do is let go of the reins and I'm going to get back. (laughs) But here's what I want to, here's why I tell you this story. Because I believe in our relationship with Jesus that all too often we're like the horse. And when stuff 
doesn't feel like it's going the way. We're like, back to the oat bag, back to the barn. And you know what? We'll get back to the oat bag. But God is going, but I actually have a better place to take you. And your little safety net that you're, you know, oat bag, oat bag. That little safety net is keeping you from getting where you need to be. And I think there's a great story in the book of uh, Joshua that illustrates this. And it's a story of this woman named Rahab who was a prostitute. It illustrates getting rid of this safety net. And the story goes like this. Moses was dead now. He had died and Joshua had taken over leadership uh, of, the, of the people of Israel. And they were going to take the promised land and they come to the Jordan River and so they're going to take, uh, take over Jericho. That's one of the cities in the promised land. And, and uh, Jericho was a fortified city. It had walls all the way around it, right? And uh, actually the people in Jericho had heard about Israel and they're all terrified. But Joshua says, hey, let's send a couple spies. You go in, you kind of scout out, let us know what's up. And so uh, these, these spies go into Jericho, and uh, they run into Rahab, who's the prostitute, because uh, that's a pretty inconspicuous place to stay. And her house is actually situated directly in the walls of the city of Jericho, okay? And so they go, and they stay with her, thinking it's going to be able, you know, easy to fly under the radar and not be noticed. But somehow the king hears about this, and he realizes that they're Israelites, and he's already terrified because he knows the Israelites are coming. So he says, he sends some guys, he's like, find those people. And they, they go, and they find uh, Rahab, and they say, hey, I want to know where these guys are. And she lies, and she says, oh, you just missed them, but if you go quick, you can catch them. And they're like, okay. So they take off. And, but what had really happened, she'd hidden them. And then uh, she, she hides them, and she lets them down through the window on the wall with a rope at night. But before, but before they leave, she says, ho, 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 hold up. We're, we're striking a deal. We're going to make a deal on this thing. And uh, so, so the deal kind of goes like this. They say, okay, here's what we're going to do. It, uh, when we come to take the land, when we come to take the land, what you do is you hang a red, a scarlet rope out of your window so we know where you are. We know which, which house is yours. And then uh, you and your family go into the house and you stay in that house and you'll be, and you'll be saved. Okay? Sounds like, sounds, like a, sounds like a good deal. And here's what I, just look at a verse with me that we find in chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. It says this. This is in Joshua. It says, now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all their families. We offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Now, there's a word that occurs in this, and the word is kind Right? But the word actually in the Hebrew is hesed. And there's no real direct English translation for the word hesed. And she says, I want you to be kind to me. And they say, we will be kind. What this word means, we, uh, sometimes it's uh, like loving kindness or uh, loyalty or um, uh, goodness. But, but, but actually the word is specifically tied to the covenant that God had with Israel and the covering of God over the people of Israel. It's talking about this contractual agreement 
okay? And so what she's saying is, hey, not, she's not saying, hey, be cool when you come back, right? She's saying, no, 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 I want part of that deal. I want in, I want the covenant of God over my house, and I want the covering of God over me and my family in exchange for your safety. And they say, deal. Now, you can ask yourself, like, why didn't she just escape down the rope when they left? You know, she could have been safe, right? But the deal gets really interesting because God had a bigger plan than just her safety. God had a plan for her, late, and I'll talk about this in just a second, but he had a plan for her in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and many other things. But here's, here's where the deal gets really interesting because what happens is this. She, he said, they say, put, put the uh, um, scarlet rope out your window so we know, and then here's the master battle strategy of the Israelites. They're going to go and they're going to march around the city once a day for six days in silence. And then on the seventh day, they're going to march around seven times, blow a ram's horn, and shout. And what's going to happen, you guys? You know what happens? The walls come tumbling down, right? Well, this is the part that's very interesting. Where did the spies tell her and her family to go to be saved? To her house. Where's her house? In the walls. That sounds like a <laughs> that sounds like a setup if you ask me. But it's not. See what she says is the rest of this city is gonna be going oat bag, oat bag. I'm gonna try and fight for myself, protect myself, I'm gonna go back to my patterns and my safety nets that are gonna keep me safe. And she says, No, I don't want any part of that. <laughs> I want the covering over me. I want the covenant of God that covers me and protects me in difficult times. In the worst of times, I'm heading back into the very thing that's going to crumble around me. But I believe if your covering and covenant God is over me, I'm safer than I am running in the streets. And here's what's tricky. Sometimes God asks us to run into the crumbling house because that's the place he needs us to be in order for us to receive the blessing that he's calling us to and create in us the people he desires us to be. Do you want the hesed of God in your life? Because if you do, it might be tricky. See, and if the street definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting something different, then what God's timing says is that we're going to do this different and we're going to get a different result. But I need to remove your safety net. No more oat bag. Get out and go and just follow my lead. Let me ask you what's your safety net? We all have them. When God doesn't move in the way that you think he should move or the way you desire for him to move. You know, do you believe he can do anything? Yes. But what if he doesn't? Is it time to run out of the house that's crashing and go into the street? Or do we desire to stay under the covering of God and go, it's better in this house with the whole world crashing down around me than to run free and risk being outside of your blessing? And then we see this. 
So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Following God in those treacherous times where his timing doesn't make sense brought the blessing. And then we see her name pop up where? Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And we see her name pop up in Hebrews chapter 11, which is an elite listing of the most faithful people in all of God's word. And we see her name pop up in James as an example of how what you do demonstrates what you believe. Yeah, she could have escaped earlier, climbed out the window, and missed the hesed of God. John Ortberg says this, biblically, waiting is not just something we have to do until we get what we want. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. We're going to close out our service today. We're going to transition into some musical worship, and I'm going to invite our greeters to come, and we're going to take an offering. And I just, I just want to tell you, even with this, that this is one of those counterintuitive moments where God blesses you. Everything you have, God has given you. And what he says is, return to me 10% of what I've given you. And that 10% will be far greater than the 100% I've given you with no return. Every day. And I'm going to tell you that in my life, that has proven itself true over and over and over again. If you don't believe, just test it. Just test it. If you didn't come prepared to give, we're going to pass the offering bags. And if you didn't come prepared to give, then you can do it on your phone or you can do it online. But I want to challenge you, even in this moment, trust in God and do the thing that feels counterintuitive to live under his hesed and his blessing. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, we are, well, we're human. (laughs) That's the problem. And you're not. And your ideas are 15.5 billion light years removed from our best thought on our best day. And yet we trust in our wisdom over yours over and over again. Release us from ourselves. Remove us from the need to be in control. Help us learn to put our trust fully in you. Expand our faith boundaries. Take us to new levels. And even through the fear and trepidation and the difficulty that we're facing, take us to a deeper place of knowing you. Get rid of the all those safety nets and the oat bags that we feel we need in our life that take control back from you and remove our trust. Thank you for your love and your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen.